18. Uh, once again, um, 1 Kings 18 has been on my heart since this past September. And I think this is a unique text for our church in whatever we face in 2022. And I'll say it again, just as I did last year. I am not one who likes to be like, oh yeah, this is, this is what the next year is going to look like. You know, you better get ready. God's going to do some stuff, blah, 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 blah. You know, and it, it's just like, okay, let the, let the year come and we'll get to it. And it's usually the very opposite of whatever those pastors and preachers said was going to happen in the coming year and all this kind of stuff. So I'm not big on that stuff at all. And yet since September, the Lord keeps pressing this text on my heart. And here's the one thing that I feel like the Lord is saying for this coming year. I will prove my presence. I will prove it. It's not as though he didn't prove it in 2021 or 20 or 19. But I think for us as God's people, we need to have our hearts just adjusted and ready for God to prove his presence among us and through us. Uh, that's what he does here in the face of Baal and, and Asherah, right? And the prophets and Ahab and Jezebel. He's proving his presence and defaming, as it were, the kingdom of darkness. That's what he does. It's beautiful. <laughs> his kingdom comes in weakness. Think of Christ in the manger. He comes in weakness. <laughs> Think of your own limitations, right? And he loves to take what is weak and shame the strong, to defame the kingdom of darkness. He's so good that way. He will prove his presence this year, again, but perhaps in unique ways. That's what he's stirring my heart for. You'll see that even in how we close things um, this morning. So let, let me do a little bit of review from last week just to get us into the text, and then just two points from the text, and I want to keep this as brief as possible. Um, last week, I began to uh, address this text by laying first something of a burden that James and I have for us as a church. Our desire as a church that is that we would have such a hunger for the Lord that there would be nothing he could ask of us that we wouldn't leap in eagerness to do. And why? Like, what, 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 why would we be so eager to jump into obedience to whatever? Because we know that in obedience, we come to encounter something more of him. The road of obedience is the road, if I could say it this way, of encounter. You want, you want to know Jesus? You want to know life and life abundantly? Follow him. Follow him. Well... Here's what I think it looks like to find. No, no, no. I don't care what you think it looks like. The word sets the standard for how we are to follow him. That's, that's the way. He's actually inviting us in to relationship. He's inviting us into depth of love and intimacy and relationship and encounter by the way of obedience. How do we know the way of obedience? We know it by the word. So it would be, as God says, comes to us and says, church, this is what I want for you in this next year. I want, oh, we're so hungry for more of the Lord that we can't but sit back. You know, we can't just sit back and be like, well, uh, let's, there's other things to do. No, we're going to do what God's leading us to do because therein we find more of the life that he provides us, life and life in abundance. Uh, and remember then, the point of this story is just that. It's it's uh, Elijah saying, people of Israel, follow Yahweh. Follow him. 
juicy one. If you understand the text and the story, that's a call to death. Do you catch it? Jezebel has just murdered all the prophets of Baal or of, of, of Yahweh. She's put them to death. She's going to try to put uh, Elijah to death in the next chapter. It's death to follow Yahweh. I think that is probably where the trend of our culture will go for Christians. There is persecution and there are hard times coming for the church. And it must be that Christians are willing to lay down their very own life in order to follow God in eagerness to find what is life and life in abundance. It'll be incredibly costly. The problem here and now with most of the church, <laughs> it's not costly yet. It doesn't cost you much to say that you're a Christian. The day is coming where it will cost us and will we still be hungry for the so hungry for him that in eagerness will be like, yep, I lay my own life down to follow after him and his purposes for me because I know therein is life and life abundant. Last week, then, we also then considered some of the characters at play in this story. Ahab, king of Israel, he's not a good dude. He brings Baal worship into the context of God's people. Jezebel, he marries Jezebel. Jezebel is actually married to a Canaanite uh, father who is actually, yes, king, but also probably high priest of Baal worship. And then, of course, we're introduced to Baal and Asherah, which are, for Baal, his name is, you know, the god of thunder. He's the, the, the god who holds, as it were, sexual power. He could either give the grace, the stuff, to see procreation take place, whether it's in families or whether it's livestock or whether it's then in the fields and the rain comes, or he can take it away, right? Asherah was uh, the goddess of fertility. All the idols, she's bare-chested and she's holding on to her young as they hang on her chest. Um, and all of this, you say, okay, that was strange stuff back in the day, but it is all too real and at play in our context now. Sexual power, and you just have to go here again, sexual power is a major factor in our culture right now. Children are taught to understand themselves fundamentally first and foremost by their gender and their sexual preference. And when I say gender, I don't mean what's between their legs, but I mean what they begin to think of when it comes to who they feel like. You get it? I may be a boy, but I'm feeling something else, so I'm better. Or my sexual preference now is no longer for the opposite. It's for something else. There's no guidelines. There's no structure. It is sexual power that once was an idol, Baal, but now has been taken into people's hearts. I will determine these things for myself. Same with Ashtoreth, the fertility goddess. Such control over life. Even when life is brought into the world, how quickly we can snuff it out. 62 million unborn, murdered since Roe v. Wade. Deafening silence from a generation not with us. And we think, oh, that Baal and Asherah, that was so primitive. We're so wise now. We're just as guilty. 
and were just as in need of an Elijah ministry to rise in such a context and culture. Because isn't that what Elijah does, is he confronts the king of the day. And Jezebel, just as the church today, is in some ways to confront the culture, to be a conscience for the culture, to at least raise the flag and say, hey, this isn't right. It's not as how we were designed to live. And so all the Baal worship and Asherah worship of our day begins to wreak havoc upon the nuclear family, and we begin to see the breakdown of society. And so as we saw last week, God has designed the church to carry something of the Elijah mantle, to see, yes, people return to Yahweh, but also the hearts of fathers return to their sons and sons to their fathers, as Malachi 4 would say. That's some of the things that we considered last week. Um, just a few more things to point out from this text. Um, I'm, jump, I'm jumping around a bit. Um, I want to point out, first and foremost, um, the language in the story that refers to limping. Now, notice in verse 20. Hope you're, I hope you're there. 1 Kings 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go what? Wavering, right? Limping, right? Limping between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They wouldn't answer him because they knew. They knew it could mean their life if they were just to come out and say, yeah, we're for Yahweh. But he says, how long will you go on limping? You're cowering in fear. You're limping between two different opinions. In your silence, you're actually giving credibility to that which is Baal and Asherah. It's such an interesting word, this idea of limping. And it's worth noting because... Uh, whoever is writing this story will use it again in verse 26 to describe the prophets of Baal as they pleaded with Baal to bring down fire. It, it's, it's written, they have limped around the altar they had made. Now, in Old Testament storylines, repeated words are like red flags. They should capture your attention. If you see repeated things, it's like the author is showing you specific things, highlighting specific things to grab your attention. So what is the idea of this limping? What is being communicated? Well, it's interesting because it's actually very similar to what we were talking about in Romans 8. God has created us with certain potential. Right? It's the acorn and the oak tree dynamic. God has created us, even in our humanity, for certain potential, that which we might grow into. And for every one of God's people, there is something of human flourishing to be realized with their God. And so, therefore, to be divided in your devotion to the God who's designed you is to become actually less and less human. You lose something of yourself when it's not given over in surrender to God, to Yahweh. You were created by him. You were created for him. You are an image bearer. The fundamental quality of your being is reflective. 
So whatever you give your time and attention to is that which you will reflect. And you were created for God, and therefore to reflect anything less than God is to actually make yourself more or less and less human. To be just a limping human. The idea of limping is actually that you're reflecting something other than what you were created for. You're being mastered by something other than what you are created for, and the end result of that is you're becoming less and less human. You're just merely limping. A divided person is a limping person. Or as James chapter 1, verse 8, maybe this is a familiar text, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. <laughs> A divided heart will wreak havoc on your life in every facet of your life. Your, your, your half-humanness as one who's limping and divided in your ways is going to wreak havoc on all facets of your life. A double-minded man is unstable, not just in one way, not just in a few ways, but it has impact upon all his ways. And therefore, whoever tries then to confess faith in Yahweh but without surrender to Yahweh will become unstable in his all, all his ways. I fear that for the church today. We got a lot of confessing Christians. <laughs> oh yeah, I've known Jesus since I was born. You know, this has been the, tr the track record of my life. I know Jesus, I know, I know God. Yeah, he died on that cross, didn't he? Okay, a little bit of knowledge up here doesn't mean you know him, that you have intimate uh, relationship with him that you've actually surrendered your life to Coram Deo, living before the face of God, where all my life now is, is submitted to a reflective quality of who he is. He gets primary attention. He gets primary sway upon my life. One who is double-minded is unstable. One who merely confesses but without surrender is unstable. It's like a one-legged stool, or one-legged chair, whatever. We don't have stools up here. Uh, you can't, listen, you can't carry his glory on one leg. You can't carry his glory on one, on, oh, does he want to show you his glory? Oh, does he want to place the weight of his glory on you and in you? You can't carry his glory on one leg, on a mere confession of faith, on just showing up to Mount Carmel, well, because I'm an Israelite and I, so to speak, follow God, while my heart is given away to Baal. Luke chapter 9 will say, pick up your cross daily and follow after me. Pick up your instrument of death to self and die. Not just like once in a while, not just like when you get around to it, not just when life is really bad, but all the time, die daily. Have that, that instrument of crucifixion that you carry with. So as soon as self begins to raise up, as soon as the divided heart begins to raise up, it's like, okay, I'm taking that to the cross, nailing that thing, mortifying it, dying to self, that I might live to Christ. Or as Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, no man can serve two masters. Don't be fooled. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
We can say we know Jesus all we want, but if our life isn't surrendered to him, we're actually despising him. We're actually hating him. And one of the ways that we can know that our hearts are divided, that we are unstable in our own, our, 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 all our ways, or that we're just limping along, one of the ways that we can know that is because whenever his commandments come to us, we feel as though they are crushing and burdensome. 1 John 1, uh, chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, catch it. If you know his love, if you've experienced his love, not just up in your head, okay, I know God, God loves me, you know, I, I've, I've known John chapter 3, 16 for my whole life since I was a little baby, so I know, like, he loves me. But if your heart doesn't know that he loves you, his commandments will be burdensome. Well, you call me to a surrendered life, you call me to gather in fellowship, you call me to pray and to the spiritual disciplines, those things will feel like weights upon your back if you have never, or maybe not in a while, have encountered something of his love. Catch it? They will be burdensome to you if you don't know his love for you, but... When you know his love, oh, they are not burdensome. You know that he's calling you into life and life in abundance. But isn't it true? I'm testifying my own heart. I know this divided heart. I know how quickly I can walk away from his love. I know how quickly his commandments become burdensome. I know how quickly I can become double-minded, serving two masters. But... There's more to this text than just that. This is, I, I was studying through this. I, man, I'm jumping and worshiping the Lord as I'm actually studying this stuff. This is amazing. This is incredible. I want to show you another point to this word limping. Look at, in, in, well, in verse 26, the prophets of Baal, okay, they, they limp around the altar. Verse 27, Elijah, you know, he mocks them. It's fantastic mockery, you know. Uh, is Baal, you know, is he in the bathroom or what's he doing, you know, relieving himself? Uh, and, and so they bloody themselves as they're limping around. They do all of this. What devotion to Baal they portray. It's incredible. But then in verse 30, Elijah pulls God's people together, and it says, He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he made an altar, in the name of the Lord. Now, if you're writing this history, what's the point? Why even, why even interject that? Oh, you took 12 stones. Tribes of the son of Jacob, whom the word of the Lord came, Israel shall be your name. What, what, okay, why, why put that into the storyline? Why can't you just say, build an altar? Even 12 stones, you threw 12 stones for 12 tribes. You know, makes sense. Why put that in there? On one hand, it seems as though they had forgotten who they were as God's family. 
Remember, Elijah's ministry is turning the Father's hearts to the Son and the Son to the Father. Elijah is calling God's people back to their family roots and to the glorious promises that they carried together, namely that there would be a Messiah who would come through them and restore all things. This reference to Jacob is a reference to God's people as a united family. He's saying, you're a family. Time to come back to the promises that God has given you and to claim them as your own. But, moreover, this is where it gets exciting to me. Do you remember the occasion when God actually changed Jacob's name to Israel? Genesis 32. Jacob is another broken family, right? Jacob, Esau, twins, you know. Jacob gets the blessing because he was that deceiver, that supplanter. And that's what his name means. And so this divides the family, so to speak. And Esau's coming after Jacob. Jacob's on the run for his life. Kind of like what God's people and the prophets of Yahweh were in this context, running from Jezebel. And so it's stated in Genesis 32 that as Jacob's on the run. Jacob wrestles with a man through the night, which is a strange thing. And, and, and yet he wrestles with this man who we later come to realize is God himself, perhaps the pre-incarnate Christ himself. And he holds on, as he's wrestling this man in the night, he holds on to this man until he blesses him. And the blessing is that his name is changed from the supplanter, deceiver, right, to Israel, which means God fights for me. But in that encounter, in that wrestle for the blessing, what did Jacob walk away with? Do you remember? A lamp. A lamp. <laughs> Isn't it good? Whoever is writing the history of 1 Kings 18, oh, he, she, they, they know, they know the stuff. Right? They know the history. They're weaving it together so we might see the point here. Jacob walked away with a limp. The writer is using this idea of limping in 1 Kings 18 in two ways then. One, to describe what a divided heart looks like. It symbolizes something that is less than human. And yet second, to describe what it may cost to become truly human. You see it? The idea is, will you pursue Jesus at all cost that you might have the blessing of his presence? Are you willing for him to break you in order that he might bless you? As Tozer said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Why? Because it's in the breaking, it's in the dying to self that we become those who might rightly steward the blessing of his presence. So the text in 1 Kings 18 is really causing us to ask this question, what kind of limp are you willing to walk with? A limp of a divided, fruitless, unstable life? or the limp of having given all to go after God? What is your life, perhaps even defined by right now, 
unstable duplicity or undignified devotion. That statement right there just makes me feel good as someone who's writing this. It's one of those things where pastorally, I, I kept it in there, but the Lord's saying, stop trying to be wise with your words. And I kept it in there so I could just say that, <laughs> confess it. Unstable duplicity or undignified devotion. <laughs> let the point hit you. Don't let my stupid trying to be cute with words get in the way of it. You see, what you love and prize, you'll make every effort to pursue. What you love and prize, you'll make every effort to pursue. You could go through your own life right now and just, okay, where is my time and attention and resources going? What, what's the greatest factor that, that moves them? What you love and prize, you'll make every effort to pursue. When I was dating... Jody, look out, oh shoot. When I was dating Jody, we dated long distance. There wasn't any discomfort that I wouldn't endure to get face to face with her. And it was actually quite easy to do it. She took priority over school. I was in seminary at the time. My grades plummeted. And yet, man, I'd still stay up all hours of the night talking on the phone, even knowing I wasn't going to get study in for that test the next day. I was willing to give even that up in order to get face to face or ear to ear, so to speak, with her. Financially, I went in the hole, <laughs> trying to get back and forth to Chicago, right, to, to visit her. She helped me out quite a bit during that time. My bank account plummeted, but it was well worth it. It was easy. I couldn't help even looking like a fool for her. I think I've just mentioned this like one time to her. I, I, remember, um, I remember having to get back on the bus in Illinois that would take me to O'Hare that would allow me to fly back home. And it's early, early morning, and it is freezing out, and the bus driver had to tell us multiple times, get on the bus, get on the bus, get on the bus. And so, in incredible reluctance, I get on the bus, and I break down in tears. <laughs> and I... I'm breaking down in tears knowing that my sobs are turning heads in the bus. What is wrong with this guy? What is wrong with this guy? <laughs> I, through my tears, I'm looking up, and, you know, there's a bus driver. He's looking at his big mirror, you know, staring at me, just like, <laughs> what is wrong with this guy? But even that was well worth it. I'll look like a fool to prize her. I look like a fool to go through the, the grueling difficulty of being separated from her and with all the emotions and the mess that comes with it. I don't care. I'll be a fool for her sake to get near her, to be with her, to grieve when I'm not with her. And guess what? It's all easy. 
It's all easy. What you love and what you prize, you'll make every effort to pursue. You'll limp, you'll limp, you'll limp. You'll make every sacrifice. It don't matter. It don't matter when I know who I love and I know who I want to get face to face with. So again, I ask, what kind of pursuit is your life defined by right now? Unstable duplicity or reckless, undignified devotion? You see, this text then isn't uh, merely warning you against the consequences of being divided. It's also about the consequences of being wholly given. It will and it must cost you. You can't give yourself to Christ and not have to die to yourself. You'll have to walk with a limp. But you get to walk with him who is life and life abundant. With that, there's a second point to this text. Again, repeated phrases are highlighting what this text is all about. Second is not only the limping Christian, but second is the answering God. You see, Elijah is referencing Jacob and the occasion of his name being changed and the limp that he carries because of it. Um, but it's also the, then to recognize that just like Jacob had wrestled with God and God answered him, and yes, even fought for Jacob, so now Elijah is taking a risk to see Yahweh respond to him. He's risking his very own life. He's putting his neck literally on the line before the God who answers. So notice in the text, verse 26 again, uh, and the prophets of Baal took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Verse 29, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. Some believe that around, that's like 3 p.m. kind of the time. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I just want to say it. Idols promise the world, they never deliver. They promise the world, they never speak. They never favor you ultimately. They'll, they'll, they'll promise everything. Oh, here's how you can be happy. Here's how you can be satisfied. They never can deliver on it. It only brings you to a point of being less and less human. Now, verse 36, Elijah has put God now to a disadvantage. It's incredible. By dousing everything three times with water. Also note, this is a time of a drought. There ain't much water around. He's being super wasteful. He's dousing three times. Douse the altar. Douse the, the moat that goes around it that he's created. All this kind of stuff. Douse it all with water. Just to note this, God loves working at a disadvantage. It's what the, the letter to the Corinthians will say. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. If you feel weak, you're a candidate for his grace and his favor. <laughs> That's good news for us, right? But then you get down to verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, that's 
three, okay, so 3 p.m., some say it's even sunset. They, they've gone on all day cutting themselves, calling out to Baal, and now it's time for Yahweh to show up. So Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Notice, here's the repeated word, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord Yahweh, he is God. The Lord Yahweh, he is God. God answered. It's important for us to note, Christians, God is a speaking God. He is an acting God. He moves, he acts, he speaks. To give yourself to him without undivided devotion, he can't but reveal himself to you and speak to you and act for you. Catch it? He loves your devotion. He loves your surrender. He, he's just bidding you come. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. I got things to say to you. I got my presence for you to encounter. I got more for you to know of me. Now, of course, God is a speaking God um, by nature. That's his attribute. He speaks the world into existence, for instance. He's given us his written word, inspired word, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 and following. We'll talk, this is breathed out by God. It's his word. This is how we get to know him from his word. But we also come to find out that Jesus is the word. Come from God, the exact imprint of his nature in human form. He comes to reveal to us, to speak to us, the reality of God. God is an answering God. He's a speaking God. But we also shouldn't miss the fact that as Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he, he, he's resurrected and then ascends to the Father. What does he tell his disciples? Well, that it's good for him to go because another's coming. The Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth, the words of God. Right? He's going to lead you, and even as Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Israel, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John the Baptist baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's this particular encounter with God, an encounter, as Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 would say, with the fire of his presence that gave people such an assurance of the Father's love and an empowerment for ministry. That's where the church begins, with the necessary filling of the Holy Spirit, the fire of God to fall upon them, to answer their prayers as they waited upon him, to come and to actually give them an experience of his love and an experience of his power to actually live out the ministry that God had called them to walk in, to be fully human, 
You will not know freedom apart from God. You will not know freedom apart from surrender to God. You will not know freedom without following in the way of God. He has so much good stuff for you, and it's, once again, easy. It's easy. I know for some of us, the things we face, the struggles going on in our life right now, it doesn't seem easy. It seems like a mountain that stands before me. It seems like chains on my hands, chains on my feet, chains on my mind. It's chains, 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 chains. Can't seem to get anywhere in this life. It's just one word, as Martin Luther says. One word will fall the enemy. It is that word who came, Jesus. And he didn't leave us abandoned. He came now giving us his spirit, his spirit to come and grant us something of the incredible love of the Lord so that to follow Jesus, it's easy. Now, I say all of that. Um, and I know I have four books up here. Probably shouldn't note that. These books are all about experiences of God's people throughout church history, of having encountered the answering God, right? I think it's important for us to recognize, Christian, you were never created not to encounter God. So if you would say, in my life I have cried out to God the God who says he answers, the God who comes in fire and in power, but I've never actually inwardly known him. You know Oswald Chambers? I mean, they had an incredible devotional book that came out. Uh, that was one of the first things is God got a hold of my heart. I was so mad at God in my college days because I knew in his word that he says, oh, I'll give you joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And I would go to God and say, I don't know that joy. What's wrong with you? You promise it. Don't come through. You're not a good God. So I'll go find joy elsewhere. So it was the, the weekends of getting away from Bible college. <laughs> Duplicity. Talk about being divided. Get away from Bible college. Here, we're going to go have fun. So we'd stop at the liquor store, literally fill up the trunks. There's just no more room in the trunk. You know, filling it up. And then, of course, we had a few friends who they'd bring other things. And that made for a wonderful experience in the moment and horrible mornings. Because uh, we would then see all the vomit and all the mess and the headaches. And uh, it was awful. We felt like the prophets of Baal slicing themselves, you know, it's like grueling to serve the enemy. But then the Lord that one night, and I just love it, like how wonderful he was to come to some stupid <laughs> Bible college student as he's drunk as could be, sitting around a fire, making jokes that, oh, I'd, I'd blush to even say them here, right? And in the midst of all that, I would hear his voice, not audibly, but everything internally, I am more satisfying than that drink in your hand. Yeah. <laughs> Startled. 
But it was his way of just saying, Dan, I love you. I love you. I got more for you. And I remember going crazy saying, guys, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. We, we got to stop. You know, they actually lifted me up and carried me and threw me in the tent. But I could not wait to get up the next morning. I just wanted to have some, cl- I knew I'd be hurting in the morning, but I want clarity so I could just talk to God. So I grab one of the canoes and I'm ugh, struggling. I get out there and just paddling. Lord, show up. What did you say last night to me? What was that? And again, I can be more satisfying than that drink in your hand. And, and it made me mad at that point. <laughs> because it was like, you can't promise and not fulfill the promise. So I said, here's the ultimatum. I will pursue you, but if you're not going to give me something, give me a crumb from your table. Give me just something that would satisfy my heart to say, okay, I need more. I need more. I need more. That began the process of opening up his word, and I would struggle through it. I didn't like it. It was boring. It was awful. And yet, one little phrase, boom, would pop off the page. And I remember, even back then, 1 Corinthians 3.18 and 2 Timothy, or 2 Peter 3.18. Both of those texts were now, boom! And it was all about, get your eyes on Jesus, get your eyes on Jesus, get your eyes on Jesus. And little by little, that began redirecting my heart to say, wow, Jesus is life and life in abundance. I have been feasting on stale, moldy bread when I have a feast before me in Jesus. Life and life in abundance. I've been limping along when I could be going after him. And that only began the process. I would waste your day talking about other experiences with the Lord along the way that I had to go, it had to be costly. But it was easy because he was so faithful to come face to face. Just say, Dan, I love you. I got stuff for you. This church, what we're doing here is a result of those encounters. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those encounters. I would have been like, oh, I can't do this. Run for the hills. Play a, you know, a Jonah. But he's so faithful. When we throw ourselves before him and say, Lord, I need a touch from you. He's so faithful to do it. Oswald Chambers, back to the boulevard. He, he writes this. He, he, was at, um, he was a teacher at uh, Danoon College um, as a tutor in philosophy. During those years, he says, God used me during those year, y- years for the conversion of souls. But I had no conscious communion with him. You catch that? This is Oswald Chambers. God used me to see people come to faith, but I had no conscious communion with him. The Bible was the dullest, most uninteresting book in existence. (laughs) And the sense of depravity, the vileness, and the bad um, motiveness of my nature was terrific. I see now that God was taking me by the light of the Holy Spirit and his word through every ramification of my being. 
The last three months of those years teaching reached a climax. I was getting very desperate. I knew no one who, who had what I wanted. In fact, I did not know what I did want, but I knew that, it, that if what I had was all, <laughs> this is me, I knew that if what I had was all the Christianity there was, the thing was a fraud. Then Luke eleven thirteen got hold of me. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? He answered. But how could I? Bad, motivated as I was, possibly asked for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then it was borne in upon me that I had to claim the gift from God on the authority of Jesus Christ and testify to having done so. But the thought came, if you claim the gift of the Holy Spirit on the word of Jesus Christ and testify to it, God will make it known to those who know you best how bad you are in heart. You get the, the mental games that's being played? If I really go after you, then I gotta own up to how jacked up I am. Yes. And I was not willing to be a fool for Christ's sake. But those of you who know the experience know very well how God brings one to the point of utter despair. And I got to that place where I did not care whether everyone knew how bad I was. I cared for nothing on earth, saving to get out of my present condition. This is more than probably we should read or need to read. He goes on to talk about how he makes a fool of himself, standing up in one class. He, he's an older man now, right? He stands up and he, he, he starts crying out for the Lord. He's making a total fool of, of himself. And even through that, does God touch him? No. It's like he's still just, you're going to be a fool for me? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Live in that foolishness for a little bit. Let people look down on you for a little bit. May, 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 let others think that you're just a total idiot. Have you been stripped of yourself yet? Are you limping yet? And then God grabs a hold of his life. He goes on. Uh, he, he goes on. Maybe, maybe I can just summarize. If the previous four years had been hell on earth, these five years, he says, since that occurrence of finally being touched by the Lord, have truly been heaven on earth. Glory be to God. The last aching abyss of the human heart is filled with overflowing with the love of God. Love is the beginning. Love is the middle. Love is the end. After he comes in, all you see is Jesus only. Jesus With the time that we have, I wanted to share more of that stuff. I just want to put a line in the sand. Are, are, are you going to limp in your divided heart? Or are you going to limp as being one who's like, I got to go after God with all. I, I don't care what it costs. I need a touch from the Lord. Maybe you say, I, I've confessed Christ, but I've never, I've never had an experience with the Lord. I've never had, as Oswald Chambers says, conscious communion with him. 
the same word that Martin Lloyd-Jones uses. R.T. Kendall. He uh, followed up uh, preaching at Westminster Chapel in London um, after uh, Lloyd-Jones' retirement, or soon after. And so they talked quite a bit together. Martin Lloyd-Jones is known as this reformed preacher of preachers. But oh, and if, if the language was used back then, he would have plainly called himself a charismatic. He called himself a Calvinist Methodist, <laughs> right? Uh, just to kind of be like, I am open to the gift. Uh, but it, he speaks of, R.T. Kendall speaks of an interaction that he had with Martin Lloyd-Jones as, as, as they discuss some of the Puritans and the Puritans' conviction that they must come to a conscious experience of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and so R.T. Kendall's bringing these resources as, as Lloyd-Jones is retired, an old man, you know, years just from his deathbed. And, and, and he's bringing these resources and he's saying, here, here are these Puritans saying, we need a conscious uh, experience of the Lord. And and then Martin Lloyd-Jones turns to R.T. Kendall and he says, do you believe this? And R.T. Kendall says, yes. And R.T. Kendall says, there with tears rolling down Martin Lloyd-Jones' face, he says, those are the most beautiful words that have ever come out of your mouth. I'm saying that because I know the cacophony of stuff that has been spoken to us about not expecting an experience of the Holy Spirit. Just do your religious stuff. Just be a good person. And you never come to know conscious communion with him. Oh, God might even use you to lead a few souls to, to the Lord. But the Bible's deaf. Prayer meetings are falling asleep like the disciples before they ever received the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you catch it? Even for the disciples, Jesus is like, watch and pray. I'm about to go to the cross. I need your prayers right now. Intercede. They're falling asleep. But Acts chapter 1 and into Acts chapter 2, they are not sleeping. <laughs> They're waiting for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to fall and fall he does. So, let's get to it. Musicians, come on up. Um, here's what I want to throw before you. My wife has been such a grace to me. We've gone to these charismatic conferences just to explore, okay, what is this? And we've learned to love these people. I don't agree with everything, but I love them because they just have a hunger that I yearn to have. And after every service, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, we're praying, all right, end of the service, we're praying. Mm -hmm. I look over to Jody, where's Jody? Jody's already running forward <laughs> to receive whatever she can. James and Caitlin now know this from the last service we were at all together. She goes after God with a hunger, and I have to claw, okay, I gotta think. What is this going to say about me? And, uh, da, 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 and I get up in my head, and I don't know. Da, 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 and yeah, I finally get to the point. She's right. I just got to get out and go. <laughs> go forward. Your pastor needs to go forward at times. Why? Because I want to be like Jacob. I want to wrestle with God until I get more of God. 
And guess what I need to do again? I got to wrestle with him again. <laughs> go after him and go after him and go after him and go after him. It's like you, you got to feed the appetite. But if you always just kind of sit back and say, no, 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 I'm calculated. I'm good. <laughs> you will live like Oswald Chambers, where this book just is like a burden to read. God's ways, nothing but hollowness. If that's what you're satisfied with, I can't do anything about it. But pastorally, we'll keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing it. It's a rhythm, not just a one-time event. It's like, I got to get hungry again because I've fed on other things. I've limped in ways that I shouldn't be limping, and now I want to limp to the right things. Got to get after God. I got to lay myself down. I got to do something that's costly, even if I look like an idiot doing it. So, if it's been a while, or maybe you've never experienced the Lord, we're just going to open up the front. If you want to come sit in the front row because you feel that that's safe space, <laughs> it's kind of coming, but it's not kind of, I don't care. You took some steps. That's great. You want to kneel on the front? Kneel on the front. Um, but we're going to sing a little bit, and I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to, to come and to bless you. I don't carry any unique anointing, you know. I don't care. I'm not Elijah, you know. Calling fire down. I just, we all share the same dad. And I think he wants to answer. He wants to prove his presence. I want you guys, I'd pray for each one. Touch them, Lord! Touch them! It gets a little crazy sometimes. You don't see it because it's in quiet. I was back there this morning playing music. He comes in, somebody came into the building. I was like, oh, we've got to this thing down, all right? Why? Because I'm, I'm interceding. It's a work to do, going after the Lord. It's, it's nothing. Half-cocked Christianity kills you, kills you. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Just lay yourself on the line. Say, Lord, you got all of me. I'm here, opening up the gates of my heart. You got, you got sway over everything. I'll be a fool. Even if you don't touch me this afternoon, if you, if, if you don't do anything right now, at least I came forward in obedience to say, Lord, I need you, I need you, I need you. You just made him happy. Whether he responded to you or not. He's got a smile on his face. I'm pleased with my child. So Lord, right now, Holy Spirit, we confess. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. And we trust, Father, how good, how good you are. So good. Jesus, you have made it so that there is no limit to the generosity of the Father. We are heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. And with that, Holy Spirit, would you fall upon us in power? Would you assure us of the incredible love that you have for us? Show us the love that you have for us that surpasses understanding. We yearn for that, Lord. We throw ourselves before you. We yearn to know that love, the Father's love. Holy Spirit, come upon us in stillness or not. <laughs> or not. Speak to us in whispers or speak to us with the bullhorn. Come with your calming presence upon us or come with the electricity, the fire of your presence. We're not going to put limits where you don't put limits on yourself. So, Lord, have sway upon this time. In Jesus' name. All right.
respond as you feel led to respond. I encourage you to come forward, whether it's on the front seat or just before the Lord on the carpet. Feel free to respond to him.
just want to pray one word over our house, our church house. Um, and it's specifically for the kids upstairs, but I want to read something and then pray. And if you're ministering, keep on going. Don't let me be a distraction. Isaiah 44 states this, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your children and my blessing upon your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. As one author writes, he says, in normal church life, we have a, have a low spiritual expectation for our children. We do not expect much from them because we do not expect much from ourselves. We drag the next generation down to our own level of spiritual backsliding. In many evangelical churches, the presence of children or even teenagers in our weekly prayer meetings is unthinkable because we do not pray as families. We never hear our children pray. If they asked to come to a prayer meeting, most parents would suggest that it was not really for them. We do not expect our children to read the Bible or have a hunger for it because we don't ourselves. Because of our own coldness of heart, we would be astounded if our children wanted to go out and witness for Christ. The tragedy is that our generation, is that our children reflect us we pass our spiritual life on to the next generation. They are what we are. We can't listen to sermons, so we assume our children can't. We don't go to prayer meetings, so we assume they couldn't. One generation creates the environment that either stifles or invigorates the spiritual growth in the next. However, God is concerned even though we are not, and he promises that when he comes in the power of his spirit, he will bless the next generation. So, Lord, even now, as we've asked you to come, we pray for all the kids upstairs. We pray for even the folks online, for the kids perhaps gathered around the screen even right now. Lord, we ask for your spirit to be poured out on them. We claim, Acts 2, that even our children will prophesy. Even our children will dream dreams. They will hear from you who is the answering God. You will speak to them so that they might speak to others and that then your light might shine and many might come to know you as Yahweh God, the one who is life and life in abundance. So God, we bless our children. We pray against the generational ties upon them, the curses upon them, the consequences of previous generations that have now fallen upon them. And Lord, we, we renounce even our own spiritual apathy upon them. Lord, we pray that you would break the spiritual apathy of previous generations and release the next generation into deeper things in you, a greater creativity in ministry for you a greater, more multicolored brightness of shining for you. So God, we ask your mighty blessing upon our kids and teach us as parents how we can propel them well beyond ourselves. 
to do great things for your namesake. And we come against the culture. Ah, Lord, we come against this culture that would say, that would try to take a hold of our kids and say, here's the way of life. We speak against that in Jesus' name. Jesus, you are life. You are life and life in abundance. That is what our kids must have, not the moldy bread of the world, but the feast at the table that you have set. May, may goodness and mercy follow our children all the days of their life. In Jesus' name.
Selfies aside. 